Good morning. How's it going? Hey. <laughs> I won't point anybody out, but welcome to all the visitors here this morning. Awesome to see you. <laughs> well, welcome. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us, Father. Lord, as, as Isaiah said, Lord, help us to be careful. Lord, help us to be quiet. Help us to not fear. Help us not to let our hearts grow faint. Lord, help us not to be overly concerned or overly worried or anxious about the firebrands of our age, Lord. God, there is constant screaming and shouting in, in, in the media of our world to make us fearful, Lord, to make us worry, God. And Lord, frankly, there's a much going on in the world that we could worry about. But Lord, we serve the creator of heaven and earth. Father, we serve the righteous king who rules from heaven, God. And that's where we put our hope. That's where we put our faith, God. Help us this morning, Father, to recognize those false gods, Lord. Help us to recognize those things that we might be putting hope and trust and faith in that just they just can't bear the weight of that, Lord. God, help us not to trust in the sweetest frame, but rather empower us to lean wholly on the name of Jesus, Lord. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. All right, well, welcome. So glad you're all here. We are continuing in Isaiah, and we're continuing this incredible political intrigue that has been going on in, in the Fertile Crescent. Just kind of refresh a little bit from last week. So we have the northern kingdom of Israel. I always got to try to do this in mirror version so it's right-facing for you. Robert, Robert's relating. <laughs> he feels my pain. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, right? Well, to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel is Syria, which is this up-and-coming power. Actually, it's an established power. And then to the northeast of Syria, you have Assyria, which is the up-and-coming power. And really throughout this whole time and really throughout human history, it's just this, this ongoing story of people coming together, establishing a kingdom, establishing a nation-state, a city-state, and eventually, ultimately, a whole empire, only to eventually be overtaken by another empire that overtakes that empire, right? It makes me think of that great vision that the king of Babylon had while Judah and Israel was in captivity, particularly Judah was in captivity in Babylon, and the, the king of Babylon had this dream, and he saw this amazing, glorious statue. And at the head was one kind of precious metal, and the chest was another precious metal, and then the torso was a, was a semi-precious metal, and then the legs and thighs were, were iron, and then, then there was a mixture of clay and iron in the feet. And the king is like, what, is, what does this vision mean? And he heard about this young Jewish man who's in exile in his own kingdom, who's become part of his, of his what do kings have? Their, their uh, 
Ms. Rowe. Thank you. You know, I can always count on Jared for full vocabulary. This court, he's in, there in, in the court, and this king finds out that this guy's actually pretty skilled, and, and the spirit of God is on him and gives him insight, gives him knowledge that really is beyond man. And the king asks him to interpret, interpret the dream. And so the interpretation is, look, this is just a symbol of these successive empires. One comes and then another one overtakes it and, and conquers that empire. And then the next empire comes and overtakes it. And he basically lays out the whole history from the Assyrian Empire all the way through the Roman Empire. But here's the key point of, this, of the story and of the vision the king of Babylon sees this rock being cut out of the mountain. And it's not, and it's really important, it's not cut with human hands. It's just this rock that's cut out of the mountain. And this rock comes and crushes this entire statue. And this rock grows, and it continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger until it's this great mountain. Well, what is that describing? What that's describing is God's kingdom. So the kingdom of man comes and it goes. The kingdom of man springs up and then another kingdom of man conquers that kingdom and it comes and it goes. But the kingdom of God conquers all and overtakes all and becomes this great mountain. So I'd share that as kind of a a backdrop and actually a prophecy that hasn't even been shared yet, but already this process is in play. So you have... Again, the northern kingdom up here, Judah's down here. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is feeling threatened by these empires that are developing in the Fertile Crescent. So they think, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to just kind of preempt the possibility that Syria may come in and invade us and take us over. Instead of letting that happen, we're just going to throw Judah under the bus and align ourselves with, with Syria and say, hey, we're, we're going to be in league with you, Syria, and we'll help you take Judah, right? Which is incredibly, I mean, who, who's the great American turncoat that we always say? Someone going to help me with that one? Thank you. very. There you go. John, see, this, this group's awesome. That's like the ultimate Benedict Arnold move of the northern kingdom, right? They just completely betray their brethren who share the same ethnic heritage, the same religious heritage, they betray him to the Assyrians. So that's where we're picking up the story this morning. So there's all this political intrigue and all this stuff happening, and it, it got me thinking a lot about, you know, politics in general and, and how so much of the kingdom of man continues to just play out. And I, I did some a little bit of research, and I looked up some of the campaign slogans from our past presidents. So I want to share a few of these with you. And starting with the classic, or, you know, the classic American president, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln campaigned on don't swap horses in the middle of the stream. Why do you campaign on that? Because they were in the middle of the Civil War, right? He said, hey, keep me in office. It's not a good day. He's got that folksy country wisdom, right, that says, hey, it's not a good idea to swap horses in the middle of the stream because you'll get wet. Right? Wait until you get across the stream, then swap horses. So he's like, we're in the middle of this war. Don't swap horses. Woodrow Wilson in 1916, you know what his slogan was? His slogan was, he cupped us out of war. What happened the very next year? We were fighting World War I. Right? Herbert Hoover in 1928, he said, 
a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. What happened the very next fall? The stock market crash. Greatest depression America's ever experienced. Very few people had a chicken in a pot, and pretty much next to nobody had a car in the garage. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1944. This is another mid-war slogan. In fact, actually, Franklin Roosevelt quoted Abraham Lincoln, and he he borrowed his his slogan as well in terms of don't swapping horses. But this one's really interesting to me. He said, "We are going to win this war, and the peace that follows." Isn't that interesting? That's a, I think that's a great slogan. Not only going to win the war, but we're going to win the peace that follows the war. I think lately it seems like we've been pretty good at winning wars, but not so good at winning the peace, right? But I really like that slogan. Ronald Reagan said, it's morning again in America. Bill Clinton said, building a bridge to the 21st century. Barack Obama said, change we can believe in. Donald Trump said what? Right? Have we heard that? Is Donald Trump going to make America great again? Is making America great again really our ultimate goal as Christians? Is that our supreme goal, to make America great again? Well, let's look at this passage. So we are in Isaiah chapter 8. My goal this morning is to equally irritate Republicans and Democrats. I hope I can do a good job. (laughs) We'll see how this goes. Okay, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters. Have you noticed already the campaign posters out on the fences? What do they write, those campaign posters? What, What kind of characters do they use to write a campaign poster? Big, giant, strong lettering that you can read in half a millisecond right as you drive by. It's interesting that literally it says write on it in common characters. Literally it says write with a man's stylus, which is the idea of write big, bold, strong letters. Carve these letters really strong. Don't use real flowery Nice, soft lettering. Make this, make this high impact. You know, for Dave will appreciate impact lettering, font, bold impact, right? Make it high impact. Now carve this in this in this large tablet. And here's what I want you to carve. Here's your, here's my campaign slogan: Belonging to Mar Shalah Hash Baz. That's a mouthful. Probably not pronouncing exactly right. But what does that mean? What that means literally, it means this. It means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. Huh. What, what, what is God saying? The, the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. Which is interesting, right? Because on one hand, God's saying, hey, write this big and bold that everybody can see it, everybody can read it. But on the other hand, it's a bit cryptic, is it not? So it's a little bit of a riddle which is not what any modern politician would ever do, right? A politician wants to make it very clear, very succinct, very and something you can instantly resonate with. But God, and I think this kind of reflects what, what has been taught already, that God's part of God's judgment going all the way back to chapter 6 is God saying, look, you want to choose idols over me? Well, you know what? If you want to worship a deaf and dumb idol, 
I'm going to make you deaf and dumb. And seeing, you're not going to be able to perceive. And hearing, you're not going to be able to understand. Right? So there's a little, little nuance to that here. That on one hand, God's saying, here's my slogan, but it's cryptic. It's a little bit of a riddle. You need to kind of think about it and, underst- and try to get to, okay, what does this mean? Verse 2, and I will get a reliable witness, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebercah, to attest for me. All right, so what is, what's the go-to strategy of any politician who's campaigning? Do they not always want to get a testimonial? They want to get someone who people will generally trust, someone that people generally believe and say, hey, say a good word for me, right, as a testimonial. Well, God's saying, look, I'm going to have, I'm going to get my own reliable witnesses, and Uriah the priest and Zechariah, both of these guys are going to be a witness to the fact that, hey, way before this happened, I already told you guys, I already put it up on a big banner for everybody to read, this idea that spoil speeds and the prey hastens. Well, what does that mean? Verse 3, and I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Fortunately for Isaiah, the prophetess is Isaiah's wife. And he went to her, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, this same slogan again, call his name Maharshala Hashbaz. How would you like to have a child named after a campaign slogan? Hey, make America great again. Come over here. Hey. I'm thinking, I mean, my dad struggled with six monosyllabic kids' names, right? <laughs> Imagine how confusing it was for Isaiah and his wife. When it's like, hey, the spoil speeds, the pray haste, go get your brother, God is with us, and come do your chores. <laughs> but you sure would remember God's message, right, as a prophet. Right? He's constantly having to say it over and over and over again. Call his name, this phrase, for bef- and, and here's, the, here's the interpretation of what this means. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Okay, you all got that? Follow that perfectly? No problem? I can just move on? No, okay, so this is what's going on here. So again, you have the kingdom, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Above Israel, you have Assyria. Then over here, you have, by the Euphrates, you have I'm sorry, you have Syria, and over here by the Euphrates, you have Assyria. So what God is saying to his people is, by the time Isaiah's son can say, Mommy and Daddy, by that time, God is going to intervene, and even though Assyria is going to come down here and try to make a move on Judah, what's actually going to happen is God is going to use Assyria, and Assyria is going to come in and wipe out Syria, and wipe out the northern kingdom. Follow that? Clear as mud. So the wealth of Damascus, meaning Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, meaning the northern kingdom, will be carried away by the king of Assyria. So don't worry about Syria, or if you're in northern Israel, don't worry about Syria, rather worry about Assyria. Because Assyria is going to come in and wipe out both Syria and the northern kingdom. So the people in Judah, they read this and they're, they're thinking, what? Great, right? We've already established this alliance with 
us area. We've already made our overtures there. Now God's saying, guess what? They're going to come in and wipe out our enemies, including our own brethren who, who are working against us. That's, that's good news. We voted for the right kingdom. Yay. Assyria wins. We got the right man on our side. But then verse 5 comes, and the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people, who, who is this people? Here's a good rule for when you're trying to understand Scripture. If you read something and you don't understand it, the rule is keep reading. Okay? Just keep reading. So because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramallah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. I'll just stop there for a minute. Okay. Because this people, well, who's this people? Based on the context, based on the fact that the northern kingdom has gone against the southern kingdom, and based on the fact that these people are rejoicing over Rezin and the son of, and the son of Ramallah, that implies that they're rejoicing over their own king of the northern kingdom, and they're rejoicing over Assyria. Probably, really, these people are the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, the northern kingdom. But I don't think it's exclusive of them. I think some of this spills over onto Judah and to the southern kingdom. So because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, what, what is God saying there? There's a really important contrast. And if you take away nothing from this morning, you really need to see this contrast. Instead of accepting and receiving in the waters of Shiloh, they have, what, rejoiced over these other earthly kingdoms, these kingdoms of men, okay? So what is the waters of Shiloh that flow gently? Okay, the waters of Shiloh are waters that flow from a spring that's right near Jerusalem. And those waters would come out of this spring and they had built an aqueduct and the water would, as water flow, if you've ever been to an aqueduct, you'll notice that water flows very smoothly and very gently through an aqueduct. So this water flows very smoothly and gently and feeds, waters, all the people in Jerusalem. This water is very much connected to not only just the physical sustaining the city of Jerusalem, but it's very much connected to David and his kingdom. It's very connected to David and his kingship of Judah and Israel. So by what, what the Lord's saying here is instead of choosing my kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, instead of choosing the kingdom that I, am, I have established and will establish through David and through his line and through his heirs, instead of receiving in that kingdom and putting your hope and faith and trust in that kingdom, instead you're looking for the kingdom of man, which appears to be big and strong and powerful and glorious, instead of these, this little trickle of water that's coming through the aqueduct. But appearances can be deceiving, can they not? Verse 20, so they watched. Suddenly, I jumped to the New Testament. I'm in Luke 20. Yay, iPad. All right. <laughs> One moment. Okay, so the Lord spoke to me because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramallah, meaning Syria and the northern kingdom, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Okay, what's the river? If I say, okay, Donna and I are going to go to the river next weekend, where are we going? Colorado River. That's a, almost a perfect parallel of how 
people in this area understood the river. Because the river here is the Euphrates and Tigris river system that flows down out of the Armenian mountains, just like it flows out of the Rocky Mountains. It, that our Colorado River flows out of the Rocky Mountains. This river flows out of the Armenian mountains. It's a big, strong, forceful river, especially in flood season when all the snows are melting. And oftentimes will overflow its banks and wipe out a lot of stuff, right? So when, when he says the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the river, they know exactly what river he's talking about. He's talking about the river, the Euphrates River. Well, what kingdom straddles the Euphrates and Tigris River? It's this kingdom right here. It's the Assyrian kingdom, okay? So I am bringing the waters of the river, the, the Sir, Assyrian kingdom, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, okay? It's like, ooh, look out, man. This is the big kid on the block now. And they're going to come in, and they're going to just overwhelm Syria, and they're going to destroy Syria and the northern kingdom, right? And if you're in Judah so far, you're like, okay, we can, we can live with that. But continue reading. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. Uh-oh. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Okay, so this is what he's saying. Not only is Assyria going to come in here and wipe out Syria and the northern kingdom, but they're going to continue to flow right on down into Judah. And the armies of Assyria are going to fill the land of Judah the full width of the land, and they're going to fill it up to the neck. Have you ever been? I remember when I was a little kid, and I've shared before how we'd always go out to the ocean. And I remember being a little kid before I was quite ready to just swim right out through the brake line. I would go out as far as I dared to go, and sometimes I'd get all the way up to the neck, but I could still, I could still touch the sand, you know? And a, a swell would come, I'd kind of lose touch for a second, and then I'd, I thought, okay, I, found, I got touch. I'd just be on my tippy toes like that. Well, that's, that's how he's describing what this invasion is going to look like for the nation of Judah. Right? He's just going to fill up the land, and they're going to go right up to the gates of Jerusalem. And if you, we don't have time this morning, but as a homework, I'd really encourage you to read all the way Second King, uh, Kings 18 right through 19. It, it'll give you the historical narrative of this whole prophecy. And you'll see exactly that. That's exactly what happens. The, the Syrian army comes in, and this, this guy who's sort of the voice of the king of Assyria challenges and taunts the people standing, you know, the, the children of, of Judah standing on, on the wall and says, you know, we're going to come in here and we're going to wipe you out. And they're, like, not saying a word. And, and, and he's like, how, who, how, why do you think you're going to be able to stand against us? We've already taken all your land. All you, you're just trapped in this city. How, why do you think you're going to overcome this? And ne- meantime, Nehemiah is giving them the a prophecy, you know what? It's not over. You're not going to be ultimately wiped out. And, and that's the very next thing we go to. And by the way, it's interesting. They're going to they're gonna fill the land with outspread wings of their army. They're going to fill it up to the neck. But whose land is it? It says the land, O Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Remember from last week? God is with us, right? So whose land is it? It's God's land. So things are looking really, really grim for Judah, 
But God's saying, hey, don't forget whose land this is. This is not the Assyria's, Assyrian king's land. This is my land, okay? Even though you are right up to the neck, on the verge of drowning. Verse 9, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. So even though you're right up to the neck, God's going to save a remnant. God's not going to allow his, his Davidic kingdom, his promise to David that David would have an heir that would rule on the throne forever, he's not going to allow that promise to be wiped out. And he's going to ultimately save the people. And notice how it, the, the repetition in this phrase, so, so God's making a declaration to all the, the people and all the far countries, look, you can strap on your armor. You can rage against my people, right? But ultimately, you're going to be shattered. It may look like you have some sway at some point, but ultimately, I'm going to protect what's mine, and you will be shattered. And this, this repetition, strap on your armor and be shattered, strap on your armor and be shattered, it, the, the, sort of the purpose of that repetition is to say it's this ongoing, continuous process. It's happening now in Isaiah's time, and it's going to continue to happen. And in fact, those of you who are in the Rev, were in the Revelation study know that this continues to happen right up through the last day, Right? Satan is released one last final time to deceive all the nations. And he raises up an army, an empire, of hum- a human kind of army to go against God's people. And Jesus shows up on a big white horse with the host of heaven behind him. And he's got a tattoo on his thigh that says, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. And with one word, he completely shatters them and wipes them out. So this is a foreshadow of that. This is happening even in Isaiah's day, and it continues to happen. Remember I mentioned that kingdom that just continues to grow in this great mountain? Look, you know what? The moment Jesus rose from that grave, the moment that Jesus was, was resurrected, that stone has been starting to break down the kingdoms of, of man, and that stone is growing. The kingdom of God continues to grow. Think about this. From a human perspective, uh, where's the Christian nation? You know, we've got, there's all these nations. Who are the big power players in, in our generation right now? China? Russia has a tiny little economy, but they have, they're a nuclear force, right? Europe? China's really good. China's the big player for the 21st century, right? China is the 21st century Assyria. Where's the Christian nation? Isn't, isn't, shouldn't this rock be growing bigger? Shouldn't God's kingdom be growing? Think about it. How many citizens of heaven are in, are in this world? How many citizens of heaven who have put their faith and hope in Christ and who obey the Lord live in China? The Chinese church is exploding. God's kingdom is growing and growing and growing, and it's powerful. It's got a different kind of power. It doesn't have the big, you know, Assyrian power of, oh, pomp and big army and big parade, right? But it's got a deeper power, one that 
endures throughout eternity. Each, each new citizen of the kingdom of heaven is a citizen forever. So where's, what's the greater kingdom? Even right now, today, what's the, greater, what's the greater kingdom? I would say the kingdom of God, even as it's expressed in his believers on this earth, is the greater kingdom. So the nations might rage. People might stomp their feet. People might free, try to freak you out with all that's broken in the world. The question is, whose kingdom do you belong to? Whose land is it? Let me put it this way. Let me ask you three questions, and then I'm going to ask you three more questions. Who do you believe? Who do you put your ultimate faith in? Who do you place your ultimate hope in? Who, do you, who deserves the ultimate honor? Let me ask this. Did the Lord ultimately deliver the world from the grips of the Cold War? Or was it President Reagan who brought mourning again to America? Did you believe the promise, uh, promises of the Almighty, or did you ultimately look to President Obama to deliver change you can believe in? Will you accept the gently flowing waters of God's kingdom, or ultimately and finally hope in President Trump's ability to make America great again? Is that where your faith is? What is your open, ultimate trust in? Who has the power ultimately? I think the challenge for I'm, I, I want to offer you this morning is who is your God? And have you made room in your life for have these other idols snuck in? Even in the political arena. And it's not just the political arena, by the way. What about pop stars? Is a pop star going to make you ultimately satisfied, ultimately filled? What about the American Marine Corps? Is, it, is the Marine Corps, the United States of America, ultimately going to protect you from each and every foe that you may face in this life? What about money? What about sex? What about food? What about your health? All these things are under assault, are they not? The nations rage against us. The enemy is always seeking to tangle us up and hinder us. Where will you look for your salvation where are the quiet, gentle, flowing streams of Shiloh? My challenge for you this week is that think hard and ask the Lord, God, what am I looking to that's not ultimately you? Where's my hope and my trust? Am I saying we shouldn't be involved politically? Of course we should be involved politically. If you want to be... Uh, you know, volunteer for the Republican Party and get the vote out, I'm behind you 100%. If you want to volunteer for the Democratic Party and get the vote out, go for it, okay? But, but I'm talking about your ultimate hope, your ultimate trust. And I think 
our culture is just screaming at us. Every political campaign slogan is screaming at us, hey, put your ultimate trust in me. I'm going to put a chicken in everybody's pot. I'm going to put a car in everybody's garage. Vote for me, right? Personally, I feel like the most impactful way we can make political effect in a democracy is to preach the gospel. Because anytime you know, there's a big deal in Capitol Hill and, and the Senate or the House of Representatives is debating some issue and it's very contentious, what's the first thing each one of those members do after there's been some debate and you know, it's before the time they're going to call a vote? They're on their phone talking to their constituents, right? They're talking to their big supporters. They're, talking to, they're trying to get a read on which way to go that will ensure that they continue to remain in office, right? That's how a democracy works. So you want to affect political change? Change the hearts and minds of, of the people. Preach the gospel. And I'm not, again, I, I hasten to add, I'm not looking down on political activism. I think we need to be part of that. But it's a question of what's, where's your ultimate hope? And it's a question of what's our ultimate goal? Is our ultimate goal to make America great again? Or is our ultimate goal to see the word of God bring life into the hearts of, of men and women? Right? Is that our ultimate goal? There's much more I would like to say. But probably this is a, this is a good place to... to uh, just camp here. I, I, I love this, this poem that I completely disagree with, but I love, I love a certain line in it. This is a Kipling poem, and the, the, the lead-in line says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. That sounds like a typical day in the office for me. Right? That's, that's, that's how our, 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 my company works. When everybody else is losing their heads and blaming you, can, can you keep your head? I love that phrase. Can you keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you? You know what? The way we keep our head is to recognize and stay close to the head, Christ, the head of all things, right? the head of the church. We don't need to fear Russia. We don't need to fear China. We don't need to fear some radicalized group that intends harm on the U.S. Yes, can they harm us? Yes. Can they hurt us? Yes. Can somebody take your life? They can. Can Satan himself take your life? But guess what? If your life belongs to the Lord, you have eternity. Right? There ain't nothing the enemy can do to us. I love Paul's attitude with that. They want to put me in prison? I'll convert to prison. They want to kill me? Well, just to the glory of God. Right? He, Paul is so often just fearless because he's so certain of his own salvation and his own connection with the Lord. Not that he didn't struggle. Not that he didn't have moments of intense fear. But ultimately and finally, he always found his hope in the Lord. Amen. So let's pray. Lord Jesus.
I just want to thank you again for your love for us. God, I want to return again to the words that you gave Isaiah. You said, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramallah. Lord, there are many, many, many smoking firebrands in this world. Father, and there are many who would like for us to just live in fear of them, including the enemy himself. But Lord, help us, God, help us to turn again to you. Help us to be careful, to be quiet, to not walk in fear, but to turn to you and understand that you love us, God. That you will preserve our lives, God. And whatever may happen in this life, God, whatever may assail us, Father, we have our open, ultimate confidence in you. Father, we put all of our trust in your word, God. We put all of your hope in your promises. Lord, help us according to your spirit. In your son's name, amen.